Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Getting stopped by police is a good way to ruin any driver's day. But if you're African-American, data show these stops happen more often, result in more searches, and can break down trust between police and communities. So what are we doing about it? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. Cato Lorenzen is a prominent surgeon, and he's working to end racial bias in traffic stops. There is a long history of racism in this country, and unless we grapple with these issues of racial bias, we will forever not be able to achieve the dream where we will live together. We'll take a dive into the data with reporter Jeff Cohen. We'll also ask historian Colin Woodard how New Englanders came to be known as Yankees. When the Dutch would look across the Hudson River and see the Puritan neighbors to their east, they called them Jan Kass, which roughly translated as cheesehead. And are you ready for a bowl of invasive crab soup? How about some sushi made with weeds from your yard? It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, writer Colin Woodard explains how New England isn't just a collection of six small states. It's the home base of a much larger nation, a place he calls Yankeedom. But first, let's listen to something that happens everywhere in America, not just New England. Is this your car? Yes. That's the sound of what you might call a routine traffic stop in West Hartford, Connecticut. The patrol officer has pulled over an SUV in a suburban neighborhood in the middle of the day. He's already run the driver's ID, and he's walking back up to the window of the car. The officer is a white man. The driver is a white woman. Anisha, I checked your license. I see that it's valid. Since this is the first time that we've met, I'm willing to extend you the courtesy of a... Oh, my God. That voice you just heard, the one saying, oh, my God, that's Paul Robertson. He's black, and when he was stopped by the same officer the same day, it didn't go quite the same way. We'll come back to Paul's story in a minute. It turns out that in this town and several others in Connecticut, you're much more likely to be pulled over if you're black or Hispanic than if you're white. And you're much more likely to be pulled over when it's bright outside and it's easy to tell the skin color of the driver. How do we know this? Because of a comprehensive report by the Connecticut Racial Profiling Prohibition Project. It analyzed traffic stop data from all of the state's 169 towns and cities. Jeff Cohen is an investigative reporter for WNPR who has done a series of stories on what this data tells us. Jeff, welcome to Next. Hi, John. First of all, how and why did Connecticut compile all this data? Sure. This is the second year that the state has done a really comprehensive analysis of more than a half a million traffic stops. And departments across the state of Connecticut are required by law to report this data uh, to the state, which then has analysts to look for trends. And it's, it's really just the data that is generated by a stop by a police officer who enters this data uh, into a database. And Connecticut's pretty proud of its work. It says it does a, a multi-layered analysis that involves several different variables. One variable that trumps the others is called the veil of darkness. That's a theory based on the premise that the driving population at 5 o'clock in the afternoon in June 
uh, and the driving population at 5 o'clock in the afternoon in January, in theory, is going to be the same. Sure. Uh, the only thing that's different uh, is whether or not the sun is out. Uh, and what we know from the data uh, is that in many places in Connecticut, black and brown people are more likely to be stopped uh, when the sun is out compared to when it's not. So what did the analysis show? The most recent data found that a few towns around the city of Hartford specifically had statistically relevant higher rates of stopping people of color than the rest of the state. Uh, and the data folks will now spend the next year interviewing people at those departments, talking to the chiefs, trying to figure out what it is that's driving those numbers. It's also important, John, to note that while police in the state support the idea of equality in policing, many of them have serious concerns about this effort. They say that the data overlooks the human side of policing. It's too cut and dry. It doesn't take into account variables like some communities have more people of color behind the wheel than others. Some areas get policing more because they have more crime, that sort of thing. We found a few important threads in, in this data. One has to do with defective equipment stops. It's a really important issue right now after the death of Philando Castile, which happened in Minnesota. It's a case that may have begun with just this kind of stop, and it, of course, ended tragically. Uh, who did you talk to about this issue? I spoke with Dr. Kato Lorenzen, among other people. He's a, a UConn physician. He's an engineer. He's also uh, on the board of this project that we're talking about. Uh, he's black, and he's been stopped for a defective equipment stop. And so broadly speaking, a defective equipment stop is anything from a busted taillight to your windows are tinted too dark to you've got an air freshener hanging from your rearview mirror. Pretty much every car on the road could be pulled over for something. If you can pull over someone for having a rear license plate illuminator light that's dim, as I've been pulled over in the past, yes, you can pull over someone for almost anything because it is a source of bias. And it really, uh, as we can see, it can have really uh, grave consequences. What it does is it allows police officers uh, a lot of discretion. And in Connecticut, what we know uh, is that in very many places, that kind of stop that offers the, the, the police officer a lot of discretion on who they pull over disproportionately affect people of color. In a bit, we're going to hear from a police department in Connecticut that's trying to cut down on the number of defective equipment stops its officers are making, and it's having a big impact. Now, Connecticut isn't the only state collecting data like this and using it to change the way it's training police. The state of Rhode Island commissioned two studies, 10 years apart, from Jack McDevitt and his team at Northeastern University's Institute on Race and Justice. And what they found isn't too different from the Connecticut story. In some Rhode Island towns, the disparity in traffic stops between white and non-white drivers is more than 10 percent. What we tend to see is, unfortunately, that uh, more people of color are stopped and those motorists are often cited more, in other words, they get a ticket more, or they're searched more than white motorists who are who encounter on the roads. There are communities, and unfortunately some of the same communities from 2004 to 2014, that have big disparities in the racial and ethnic demographics of who they stop. But we did see a good story in that in what we call post-stop activity, which is who gets a ticket, who gets searched, who gets found with contraband on them. The training that happened after the 2004 study seems to be bearing fruit. Police officers are searching fewer cars, and they're finding more contraband on those that they search. Why that's important is that if you've been pulled over and searched and nothing was found, you really feel that that's an intrusion in your privacy. And it makes you wonder why you were singled out. If you're a person of color, your conclusion might be because of what you look like or your heritage. 
the fact that there are fewer people being searched and not found anything is a good thing for trust in uh, community relations between police and their communities. Sometimes that trust and community relationship building all comes down to communication. Take the case of my former co-worker, Paul O. Robertson. Paul's black, and he's filing a complaint about an incident where he was pulled over by a police officer in suburban West Hartford, Connecticut. He also posted about it on Facebook. Paul wasn't angry about the reason he was pulled over. He was speeding, and he wasn't subjected to a search. What bothered Paul was the way the officer talked to him. We got a hold of the dash cam video of Paul's stop and invited him into the studio to discuss what happened. Paul, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, I want to have you take us through the traffic stop and, and where exactly you were headed that day and what, what you were doing and, and what led up to this, this stop. Well, I started out, I had an early morning appointment in West Hartford. And uh, I had left and I was traveling down. As a matter of fact, I was en route to Dunkin' Donuts and hitting the bathroom. And I had to go to the hardware store. So I'd left my appointment. I was traveling south, getting ready to, you know, head down to Dunkin' Donuts. And then I hit a stoplight. You can see on the video that Paul drove through the next traffic light, which was yellow. Then the lights on the police car go on and Paul pulls over. Listen closely to their interaction. Some parts are a bit hard to hear. Hi, good morning. Good morning can I see your license registration insurance, please? Paul, is your current address from Haskins? Pardon? That's your current address from Haskins? Yes. Okay. I just changed it. We just moved. What brings you to West Hartford? Oh, I was just at uh, West Hartford an appointment. I was going to Dunkin' Donuts. Okay. How often do you come to West Hartford? Okay. Uh, you familiar with speed limit? Oh, was I, I'm sorry. Yes, I was I not going to speed limit. No. You know the speed limit? I'm sorry. It's 30. You know any idea how fast you're driving? I'm sorry? I go down this. Okay, 48 miles an hour. Not 30. That's why I'm stopping. Sorry. Did you catch that? The officer asked Paul, what brings you to West Hartford? And then, how often do you come to West Hartford? Having that line of questioning, honestly, I was just floored because in my mind, I'm trying to be respectful at the same time and not trying to, you know, create a, a, a conflicting situation in that moment. Could I ask... Paul, what did what specifically did you hear in his words, if not the exact words? What did it translate to you in your brain? Well, and and that's probably that's a great question because in my brain it translated to what are you doing in West Hartford and have you ever been here? The officer takes Paul's documents, asks him to wait in the car, and then you hear him typing on his laptop. A few minutes later, he walks back to Paul's window and gives him a ticket. Paul asks him a question. I was curious as to why you asked me about. Um, being in West Hartford. Oh, because you're, because you're, you said you're just from, you're from Windsor. Yeah. Now I'm really ticked. Question, because I'm in West Hartford all the time. Okay, but I don't know you though. So it says, it says Windsor. So my question was, which obviously I led into, oh, well, is this the way, how often are you in town? Because the more often you're in town, the more likely you are to know the posted speed limit. That's all. Windsor is miles away from West Hartford. <laughs> it's like, you know, was I another country? Is there something very special about West Hartford that, you know, in terms of their traffic laws that we don't have anywhere else? That was the first time you saw the video just now, right? Correct. First time. So I'm wondering in watching the video, if there's anything about seeing it that makes you feel different. No, it, it is the language, the demeanor in terms of how it's communicated 
And then, as I said, just the questioning and the line of questioning made me feel like I was, I didn't belong. We wanted to see how this officer interacted with other people during traffic stops, so we got all the videos we could from that officer's dash cam, five in total. We played one for Paul that took place on that same day and on the same road where he was stopped. This time, the driver is a white woman. Four, four, four. Is this your car? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> Lease your current address on Walden Street. Okay. This is a point over going 46 and a 30. I'm going to start right back inside the road. Okay. Okay. Is there any reason The woman says something about rushing to meet a babysitter. The officer goes back to his car, and we pick up where he returns to the woman. Alicia, I checked your license. I see that it's valid. Since this is the first time that we've met, I'm willing to extend you the courtesy of a Oh, my God. Let me go back and just replay that. Alicia, I checked your license. I see that it's valid. Since this is the first time that we've met, I'm willing to extend you the courtesy of a verbal warning in exchange for you agreeing to pay closer attention how fast you drive. Fair enough? Thank you. All right, drive safely, please. So what the officer says to this woman is, since it's the first time we met, he's going to let her off of the warning. She was going 46 in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. You were going 48 in the 30-mile-an-hour zone. I, I am speechless yet not surprised. I, I'm totally speechless. And it's interesting because the conversation didn't ensue. I don't know you, you know. The conversation is, oh, this is the first time we've met. You know, is it a male-female thing? Is it a color thing? Is it – but still, I think even if you look at that particular stop, you see the demeanor. The demeanor is quite interactive and somewhat friendly. And as I said, complete opposite. So seeing that video, does it change anything that you think about the interaction you had? Uh, it confirms it. Are you glad you put this out in the public and, and you decided that you were going to make this traffic stop, this fairly routine thing that was important to you, uh, so public and actually have a, a dialogue about it? It highlights something that I think is wrong. And it may not be just the West Hartford Police Department. There are other police departments across the country, as we can see. The purpose of me putting it out in public was to letting people know. It's like, you know, there is still a major, major problem. You know, there's something that has to change within our culture. There's something that has to change within our community. Paulo Robertson, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Paul's had a back and forth in letters with the West Hartford Police Department, which has stood by its officer, but they acknowledged Paul's concerns. They said they discuss it with their community review board, but they haven't followed up. We reached out to the chief of police for this story, but he declined because Paul's complaint was still under review. That's also why we're not naming the officer. You can watch the dash cam video of Paul's traffic stop for yourself on our Facebook page at Next New England. The story of racial disparities in traffic stops in states like Connecticut and Rhode Island, where there are large minority populations, is very different from the story of Vermont, a state that is overwhelmingly rural and overwhelmingly white. But that doesn't mean these stops aren't a problem. We've heard, as lots of law enforcement agencies had heard, uh, anecdotal stories from members, citizens of color, saying, you know, I'm, I'm being stopped. I feel like it's disproportionate to the need here. Um, is it normal for, for my son, my black son, to be stopped, you know, four to five times a month? Uh, these types of stories from people who are concerned. That's Captain Ingrid Jonas of the Vermont State Police explaining why her state began gathering data on traffic stops years ago. 
Remember that researcher from Boston, Jack McDevitt, we heard from earlier? Vermont got him to analyze traffic stop data, and that report was released this spring. It also showed racial disparities in traffic stops and searches, all the same problems seen in the Connecticut and Rhode Island data. So they asked Jonas to take on the job of Director of Fair and Impartial Policing and Community Affairs. She's taking a hard look at the way police in the state are trained. When we go through the academy, so when we're brand new, we're still in the training process, we practice techniques for approaching vehicles, and we, we do it over and over again, and we also see videos that are very upsetting and scary. You know, we see video footage from a cruiser of the officer who's left his or her cruiser and is suddenly overtaken by violence from the passenger. Or, and we have these, these images etched in our mind, and I think that our trainers try to help us understand what can happen, the worst case scenario. But the truth of the matter is that the overwhelming majority of our motor vehicle stops are just really, you know, not going to lead to violent incidents. So nobody likes to be stopped. And oftentimes people are argumentative or impolite, and it's just kind of the nature of the work. But it sets up this dynamic that we, I think, also can contribute to, (laughs) where It just doesn't feel good to either party. In Hamden, Connecticut, a suburb outside of New Haven, Chief Thomas Weidra says his department is making changes, too. Weidra told Jeff Cohen that he's told his officers to think twice before pulling someone over for things like a busted headlight. I've driven my point across that uh, I am more interested in uh, those motor vehicle violations that are known to cause accidents, accidents with injuries, and accidents that produce fatal consequences. Speeding stop sign violations, uh, texting and driving, distracted driving, red light violations. His department has participated in fair and impartial police training with the Department of Justice, which included a discussion of bias. Weidra says it was helpful. All humans possess subconscious thoughts and, and subconscious biases. And it's okay to admit it. And so it's important for police officers to understand that their experiences as police officers can either reshape or remold them and cause them to make decisions that they're not intending to to make. But he says the report doesn't tell the whole story. Part of the reason more minorities are stopped, he says, is the higher demand for policing in these areas populated by non-whites. Those are the folks that are emailing me and calling me and when they see me, begging me for enforcement. It's important to note that Widra says his department was making changes before the data was released. He says it's part of a department-wide shift in focus toward engaging with the community rather than handing out tickets. Is it possible that we are most effective when we are simply in neighborhoods, driving around, talking to people, engaging in people, riding our police bicycles, walking beats? So Jeff Cohen, a lot of police departments are talking about this, wanting to get more police walking the streets and talking to people but you've seen some big problems in making this work practically in cities and towns. That's right. Take Hartford, for instance. Uh, On the one hand, it wants its officers, as the mayor told me recently, all of its officers to have an ethos of community policing, meaning this is sort of not just what we do, but who we are as we patrol our cities. But on the other hand, the city of Hartford has 20% fewer officers than it needs. When you don't have the money you need to pay for the people you need, it's harder to get officers out of the enforcement business and into the community business. And that's where some of the tension is today. Jeff Cohen is an investigative reporter for WNPR. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. We'll have links to some of Jeff's reporting on our Facebook page at Next New England. Coming up, what if New England wasn't just a collection of six tiny states in the Northeast? 
What if it was the birthplace of a nation, a nation called Yankeedom? This is next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. The map is a thing that's never more analyzed than during an election year. Red states versus blue states, cities versus rural towns. Maps divided by gender, age, race, population. And it's possible that there's been no other election cycle in which we thought we had a map figured out, only to realize we had it all wrong. Writer and historian Colin Woodard has spent a lot of time looking at the map of the United States. And in his book, American Nations, he's thrown out the idea of states altogether and instead imagined 11 distinct nations connected not by our current governmental boundaries, but by a common culture. Imagine a New England-influenced region called Yankeedom, stretching across New York State, the top tier of Ohio, and all the way into the Great Lakes. We talked to Woodard a few months before the election, and we thought his insight into what divides us and brings us together might make even more sense now. We reached him in the library of his hometown, Freeport, Maine. Colin Woodard, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. So let's start with some of the basics of the American nations that you talk about. Uh, you've divided up North American into 11 parts, which are divided culturally. Uh, each nation has different political and religious and ethnic characteristics, and it goes all the way back to the people who settled there. Um, since this is a show about New England, uh, let's talk about our home base here, a place that you called Yankeedom. W what exactly is Yankeedom? Well, Yankeedom is the greater New England cultural space. In other words, New England and the areas of North America which were originally colonized by New Englanders and their descendants. And with them, as with the other nations described in American nations, came the cultural assumptions and institutions and values and stories about who we are and you know, r religious uh, proclivities and philosophical ideas and indeed all of the things that make up culture. So what are the stories, the characteristics of Yankeedom that we have exported from, from this little part of the world? Well, there are a number of characteristics. So the, you know, the early Puritans were the original colonizing culture. They were there to build a, a um, applied religious utopia, right? The light on the hill, it was going to be, they believed themselves to be a, you know, have a special covenant like the Old Testament with God and that they were the chosen people and that they had a mission and the mission was to create a more perfect society. And indeed, that's what they tried to do, and they did it as a collective endeavor. The idea was to ensure the community's freedom. The idea in the uh, New England and Yankee mind is that the danger to freedom would be that individuals, because individuals are corrupted and uh, you know, sort of a nasty lot in Calvinist thought, that uh, a rapacious individual might rise up. One of us will rise up and become a tyrant over the rest of us. And there was this faith that you can execute your utopian experiment, you can try to improve the world through shared public institutions. I mean, you see throughout that Yankee space, that's the area where there's the most comfort in government being able to possibly do things right, or at least ideally it should do things right. While New England shares so many of these characteristics that you describe very well as Yankeedom, uh, you're a Mainer, I live in Connecticut, people from Maine and New Hampshire 
and Vermont certainly all see themselves as very, very different types of Yankees. How much do states define us? I don't think it's even so much the states. I mean, these broad regional cultures, including Yankeedom, are at the big level, at the sort of level of nation, as you would think of it in Europe. If you start zooming down more layers, ethnographically, in terms of settlement history, in terms of the, the relationships and historical backstory, there are all sorts of subtleties at, uh, at a higher and higher resolution. Indeed, you can write an entire book about the uh, deep scarring of the people of Maine early on by their experience of being absorbed into the, um, into the greater New England Puritan-driven Massachusetts cultural space and becoming the district of Maine. There's, there's a lot uh, of parallels with being a post-colonial people, including the, the, the feelings of resentment towards the metropole, in this case, eastern Massachusetts, and all things Massachusettsian, <laughs> but also that the sort of uh, sense that we're not... Uh, um, good enough to stand on our own, this lack of, of confidence. You could tell a story like that about the differences between uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts, between eastern Massachusetts and western Massachusetts. You can bring in the little Scots-Irish enclaves that were intentionally brought in by the great land, uh, land barons to stop the Indians. They were supposed to populate the frontier. They brought in whole boatloads of Scots-Irish to places like Derry and Londonderry, New Hampshire, but also moving on to the coast of Maine and to other areas, and those areas and counties and towns had a very different role and culture in our, in our history. So yes, uh, you go into a higher level of resolution, and there are all kinds of distinctions and differences, but behind it all is a common framework at the big nation level. So if there's a common framework across Yankeedom, even within some of these, these differences, talk about our, our friends, our neighbors, our allies. I mean, sitting here in Hartford, Connecticut, as I talk to you, I, I will note that there's only one tiny small sliver of what we call New England that is not part of Yankeedom, and it is roughly Fairfield County, Connecticut. Now, those of us in Connecticut have always felt like Fairfield County is its own thing, and, and you have essentially formalized that as it being part of a place you call New Netherland. Precisely. That's, the, that's your neighbors, especially for those of you listening in Connecticut. Your, your near neighbors are a Dutch-founded zone where the initial and successful and lasting colonial enterprise was led by uh, the Dutch during the golden age of Amsterdam in the 17th century, when Amsterdam was the preeminent, perhaps the most sophisticated city in the Western world. And right during that time period, they founded this colony uh, at the mouth of the Hudson River on the end of the island of Manhattan, and it had a Dutch minority from the very beginning when it was a village of six or 700 people perched there. Um, what became New York City uh, had a uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious polygot population. There were Swedes and Dutch and Yankees and, and uh, Indians and French and people of all sorts and religions and Sephardi all in this little village. And it was plugged in as a global um, trading uh, base, a sort of city-state like the, like the ones on the Baltic from the very beginning. And indeed, it's still that today now that it's one of the biggest cities in the world. So that's a very different culture from New England. And when the Dutch would look across the Hudson River and see their neighbors, you know, the, 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 uh, the Puritan-centered uh, neighbors uh, uh, to their east, they called them Jan Kass, which, you know, roughly translated as cheesehead because, you know, it, they, they seemed so um, backwards and inwards looking and intolerant and the like. And that name stuck as Yankee. I'm interested in, in this idea of New Netherland being a place that has always been defined by diversity and how you feel diversity has been part 
of the story of Yankeedom. Um, on our program, we want to tell the story of a place, New England, that is changing quite rapidly because of immigrants coming from all over the world and changing some of the long-held traditions that we have. Um, we think of ourselves, I think, in New England as a place that is very welcoming of outsiders. But you write that that has not always been the case, and that's certainly compared to a place like New Netherland or, or greater New York, we have been less tolerant in some ways here in New England. It's about a different idea about identity and how you acquire it and what the American identity should be. So the early Puritans were not tolerant of outsiders at all. In fact, unlike most of the other colonies, you had to apply to be allowed to visit or um, become a a um, resident of Massachusetts Bay, and indeed you had to become a uh, go through a vigorous process to be uh, admitted as a member of the church before you could really be a citizen. So it was a very difficult and not particularly tolerant place at the beginning. Once the real great waves of uh, third-party immigration started in the middle and second half of the 19th century, um, huge numbers of people came and were welcome to come to New England in the Yankee space. But here's the catch. Unlike New Netherland, or the uh, Quaker-founded uh, areas of uh, Pennsylvania that stretch out into parts of the Midwest. The model was not that immigrants could come and settle an entire community of whatever it be, you know, Poles or Irish or Italians or, or whatever immigrant group it was. Our model was the melting pot, which is a very different thing. The idea is, yes, you can come, but you are supposed to assimilate and become like us, right? You're, you're supposed to melt away your differences into our uh, stock of stew. <laughs> Help me square this other piece of New England's Puritan um, roots and our role now as one of the most socially progressive parts of the country, for instance, Massachusetts becoming the first state to legalize same-sex marriage uh, many years ago. The, the sense is that these states of New England are the place where social progress is made, or at least that's how we like to think of ourselves. But the, the Puritans that founded this region probably were were some of the the least socially progressive, at least in the ways that we think of them today, uh, people of any history we can imagine. Right. Highly intolerant. Absolutely. However, what has stayed back to the Puritan period is this sense of there being a mission, right? That the culture has a mission to to perfect itself, to be constantly attempting to build a better and more ideal society, and that we should do it, and that uh, we all have sort of a moral duty to do it and to make things better. And at certain times, that had to do with making sure that none of those nasty Quakers showed up, or that the uh, you know the taint of uh, Catholic immigrants who were supposedly all you know agents of the Pope, that you had to uh, set up public schools and try to prevent them from having their own parochial schools, so that they would be assimilated into being good Yankees. And uh, up until the Civil War period when you started having enormous emphasis on, you know, you had to abolish slavery, that that was an abomination to any sort of egalitarian society and to the freedom of the community because it fostered aristocracy and hierarchy and, uh, and brutality. And so, uh, you know, temperance movement, um, the women's right to vote, all of these things in sequence were things seen as, um, as things that would perfect society and make the community better and stronger. And that has changed over time, and now, the idea is that you need to be tolerant of <laughs> many of the precise things the Puritans would have hated. But the mission and the, the, the society-perfecting element of it is the key that's, that's been there for 400 years now. And, of course, one of the through lines you write about is that education is really at the, 
top of the list, that the aristocracy that we know of Yankeedom comes from our educational attainment, not from our nobility. But with that comes a, a certain type of, well, let's just say it's snobbery that looks down our noses at the people of greater Appalachia or the people of the Deep South. And I wonder how you feel as though that plays out in modern Yankeedom. The, the fact is, is that an awful lot of the rest of this country, a lot of the rest of the world may see the values and the views coming out of uh, the New England states as something that is just a little bit too big for its britches. Well, there's definitely been that emphasis on education because the early Puritans believed that each person had to actually read the uh, read the Bible and become informed and sort through the big problems themselves. And so it was the first society in America and one of the few in the world where there was, in fact, taxpayer-financed public education and uh, that most people were expected to actually attend. So it quickly had one of the most literate populations in the world at the time. And that had you know, very broad effects on the society. To, even to have everyone be able to read opened up the possibility of the dissemination of ideas and newspapers and ultimately science. And the, the, Pur the Puritans were highly motivated in their successors to constantly setting up not only public schools, but colleges and universities. Education was a big part of it. And yeah, that could be snobbish and often was through history, particularly when the Yankee settlement uh, uh, rubbed up against, say, the greater Appalachian one of the Scots-Irish, where there wasn't that emphasis on education. Indeed, there was an emphasis on individual liberty and personal sovereignty. And uh, and those two groups immediately had, you know, were like oil and water and settlement. They tried to avoid each other because they found each other's whole worldview very oppositional to their own. One of the things that I know you were asked a lot about in 2011 when your book American Nations came out and you, you presented these ideas was this notion that America was becoming uh, a homogeneous place, that everything from our politics where we're looking at Fox News or CNN and getting our, our talking points from national voices right down to the, the look of our suburbs. I mean, honestly, Colin, the, the difference between a suburb outside of Boston and one outside of, of Atlanta isn't all that stark these days. Um, that all of these influences from, from the internet and globalization may be making a more watered down, more homogeneous place that strips away some of what you've written about that defines these these nations. Uh, I, I know you've responded to that over time, but even even now it's it's five years later than when your book uh, was written. How do you feel that has progressed? Do you feel as though we've become a more watered down group of nations from when you first uh, conceived of this? Oh, no, absolutely not. If anything, the uh, distinctions between the nations continue to grow by almost any data set you look at. And you would think it would be the opposite, right? We have mass media and mass retailing and mass culture and the Internet, and we're all watching the same movies, and you can you know, hop on a plane and go almost anywhere, and people move around. You would think the differences between these cultures would be disappearing, and yet by almost any metric, they're not from political behavior to, you know, map anything by county. You know, look at diabetes rates, look at uh, income inequality, at health insurance, at the ability of somebody born in the bottom uh, quintile of the population, uh, you know, socioeconomically of reaching the top. And look at that by county. You will see over and over again these same fault lines. So, so I wonder then, do we ever split apart? I mean, does Yankeedom ever say, look, we're not part of 
of the Deep South in such a profound way that we need to to separate from this thing we call the United States of America and forge our own way based on some of these these original principles, these founding principles that have been at our core for 400 years. Well, that's the danger, isn't it? You know, that the the few things that hold us together, despite the balkanized character of our early settlement and our culture and our political culture, the things that hold us together as a federation, as those are, uh, are you know, are being destroyed by various solvents, you know, the disagreements over the Constitution, the inability of the federal government to uh, function, a lack of consensus on the big questions and, and vocabulary like what does freedom mean, those are all dangers for a federated country. I very much would not want to see that happen, both for the good of the country and for the world, in part because having uh, been a foreign correspondent based in the Balkans during the 1990s and covering the aftermath of uh, things like Bosnia, I don't have a optimistic and rosy view of the human condition that would suggest that were we to secede and break up the country, that it would indeed happen as peacefully as people assume. So that's one element. But also, you know, despite our differences, we've succeeded and building a dynamic and rather remarkable country for all of its, you know, faults and uh, and missteps over time, one that did change the world and one that uh, the world sort of needs our leadership in order to function whenever there's crises out there. So all the more reason to work out ways to uh, bring us together. You're never going to have consensus between the outliers, between Yankeedom and one pole in the Deep South and the other. There is no consensus on the big issues. But what you can do and what has been done throughout history is one or another block is able to win over enough of the regional cultures that are in between in their values to build a governing supermajority. And the new book, American Character, goes through our history and discusses the tension between interpretations of freedom, you know, individual liberty versus common good and building a free community, and identifies a sort of way that you would be able to build a set of political ideals that would deliver you a supermajority and let you do that and avoid the secession and breakup scenario. The book American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America is by our guest Colin Woodard. His most recent book is called American Character, A History of the Epic Struggle Between Individual Liberty and the Common Good. He joined us from his hometown of Freeport, Maine. Thank you so much, Colin. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, putting invasive plants and animals on the menu. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of housing and homelessness. I think it's fair to say that the regional food of New England is seafood. Lobster rolls, fried clams, steamers, scallops, and for as long as it lasts, cod. Some fish, like cod, are considered vulnerable in New England waters. Others, like herring, are in short supply. Now, you might not think about herring as a fish you eat, but it's used as bait for those tasty lobsters, and that has lobstermen worried. Depleted stocks, warming waters, pollution, nitrogen runoff, they're all concerns that have us changing the way we think about what we eat from our waters. It's why a group of chefs, scientists, and fishermen gathered in Rhode Island to cook with what's called trash fish, or bycatch, the unwanted residue of a commercial fishing operation. Here we have butterfish. Um, this is a fish that's called, caught um, by trawl, often in conjunction with squid. We also have skate wings, so these are mostly We have cohogs that um, are also caught throughout Narragansett Bay. You know, they are the typical. We have long fin squid, so this is 
our state appetizer here, calamari. Is probably the most These are whelk or conch. They're more guys, a little bit bigger. Or scuff. They're a little more scaly. Right here we have um, fluke or summer flounder. So these guys, um, these are striped sea robins. So. And I used to catch sea robin when I went fishing with my stepfather, and we used to throw it back because they're a hideous-looking fish. <laughs> That's Chef Ben Mayhew, and before that, Anna Malik from the Commercial Fisheries Research Foundation, talking with Rhode Island Public Radio's Kristen Gourlay. That group hopes that by putting these humble fish on the menu, it'll reduce demand for those increasingly threatened, sought-after fish that you see on just about every seafood restaurant menu. I'm probably going to upset some of my fishermen friends. That's Brendan Vesey, chef at The Joinery, an upscale restaurant in New Market, New Hampshire. Tuna is delicious, and I understand why we catch it, but I currently don't serve it. Reporter Emily Corwin from New Hampshire Public Radio went to find out why. He says eating that one big predator at the top of the food chain throws off the whole ecosystem. So instead of seared tuna steaks on his menu, it's... Invasive green crab bisque with seared fish, fresh peas, and house-made bacon. That's right, invasive green crab bisque for $10. That creepy sound is 20 pounds of green crabs clawing and crawling in a plastic bucket. Fisherman Everett Leach is dropping them off here at the restaurant. As he stops one from escaping, another crawls right out. Keep an eye on them. They're runners. Green crabs are native to Europe and Africa, but they arrived in New England 200 years ago. They eat a lot of things fishermen are after. Clams, oysters, mussels, soft-shell crabs, scallops. The Maine Clamors Association describes green crabs on their website as a cancer literally eating away at Maine's marine resources. That's a quote. Quantity is not a problem. There's millions of them. VC pays two bucks a pound for these guys. That's a third what he'd pay for steamer clams and a ninth what he'd pay for scallops. All right, guys, it's your time. Immediately, he starts throwing the crabs into two big stockpots. I'm going to put them in a hot pot with some oil in the bottom and toast the shells up, and then I'll add liquid to make uh, stock. For now, stock is about the only thing you can make with these guys. VC says you could spend hours shelling all 20 pounds of these crabs and end up with only a half pound of meat. And they're really small, and, there's, and they're really, really hard. The shell's rock hard. The stock is green and pungent, and it tastes sweet and rich. VC hopes someday, though, he can do something more with these little critters than just make soup. With blue crabs, for example, that's the kind you find in Maryland, fishermen have figured out how to catch them just before they shed their shells, then harvest them while they're naked. That's soft-shell crab. If we had those, we could probably get rid of green crabs in a year because everybody wants to eat that. It's been 200 years since the New England shoreline was free of these invasive predators. Without them, think of all the money makers, the oysters and scallops there'd be to go around. That's reporter Emily Corwin. She produced that story for New Hampshire Public Radio's food blog, Foodstuffs. I've actually eaten tiny invasive crabs before. They're on the menu at a place in New Haven, Connecticut called Mia's. It's known as the birthplace of sustainable sushi. What exactly does that mean? Well, you can't find the things you're used to seeing on the menu of the sushi place down the street. There's no farmed shrimp or salmon, no bluefin tuna or eel. They're replaced by unwanted fish like carp and lots and lots of plants. Some of those plants come from Chef Bon Lai's front yard. This is, this is wild lettuce. Smell this. It's amazing. Oh, it smells beautiful. Okay, and then take a little tear like that. Yeah. Taste like it. That. 
Whoa. <laughs> and it has a lot of flavors I wouldn't have expected. Mm -hmm. You know, just sort of, it jumps out at you at first. Mm -hmm. And really waves of flavor. It's yeah. very, very um, sophisticated. But it's an old plant. And you'll feel that way about a, a lot of the plants that we'll be eating today. So, wow, look at this right over here. Another weed. That's pretty much how Bun Lai works, foraging for edibles in the ocean, in the sand, in the woods, and in the yard. We spent about 20 minutes stooped over on a sweltering day, filling a basket with wild mustards, mugwort, and dandelion weeds. He called it lunch. He then took us on a walk to go in search of knotweed, an incredibly pervasive, invasive plant that you'd recognize growing tall at the side of a highway. This is a great ro road to go foraging because uh, there are barely any cars on it. But here you go, this is a, uh, how would you describe this? <laughs> yeah, how would you describe it? I mean, I, I think some people, when they first see it for the first time, they'd say, oh, this must be bamboo. It's like a bamboo forest, and like bamboo, that's also invasive. It crowds everything else out. So if you look around the ground where the knotweed is growing, there's nothing else growing but knotweed um, because it shades everything else out and all the other plants around here need sun. Some of this knotweed is 12, 15 feet high. So what would you have to do to get rid of this? Uh, the way it's generally done is pesticides because it's so incredibly hardy. And even with pesticides, it's really hard to control this thing. So it really makes sense, really more than anything, just to weaken the plant. And the way to weaken the plant is to, to keep chopping it down. I'm gonna show you, I've got, I brought a machete. Give it a little snap. So I got one right over here. Ooh, this one's great. These big leaves. At Mia's, what we do is um, we kimchi pickle these and then deep fry them into chips. And uh, what we're doing right at home, and you're gonna taste it, is uh, we're simmering these leaves right now in a stock, and then we're gonna make our own sushi out of it. Now imagine if we took this knotweed, not just this knotweed, but we made relationships with all these different parks and all these different areas where uh, invasive knotweed uh, was a problem. And then we were to process these into these, these chips, you know, that we know taste incredibly delicious because we've experimented at Mia's. Then all of a sudden we'd be able to help curb the proliferation of the species and also um, put it to good use. We took some of these huge knotweed stalks into the kitchen, along with another enormous leaf plant called butterbur, which he threw into the simmering knotweed stock. We took the rest of the woody stalks to his appreciative backyard goats. They're uh, very, very excited. They know what's coming. Oh, yeah. When I f discovered my first uh, invasive species, it was with my buddy, Yancey. We were flipping over rocks, and we saw these invasive Asian shore crabs. Um, in fact, the ones that are right in this bucket. 
see that. Look at that. So there they are. There they are. Oh my goodness. So I, mean, I thought you had like some sort of like chicken food in there. It is chicken food. <laughs> so we're gonna feed these to the chickens. If you've never seen ducks and chickens running after a scurrying shore crab, you are missing something. Now the animals have eaten their invasives, it's sushi time in the kitchen. And here's the knotweed coming out. He pulls a few leaves of the weed out of the aromatic broth. He's prepared some simple sushi rice, a homemade sauce made out of stewed seaweed from Long Island Sound, and those leafy greens we picked in the yard. We're gonna step back to the origins of sushi. So thousands and thousands of years ago, people were only eating uh, food that they would find in their backyard, so to speak. That's what we're doing right now. We're eating ancient-style sushi that was much more nutritious and tastier and simpler than what it is today. And uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll dip it. Let's dip it into the seaweed first. And then, mm, mm. oh my gosh. Mm. The seaweed, so that's that's like your that's your version of soy sauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Whoa. I really prefer that. Mm. That's really good. And it felt good too, making use of something we spend good money and bad chemicals trying to get rid of. For pictures of me foraging and making sushi with Chef Bun Lai of Mia's in New Haven, go to our Facebook page. We're at Next New England. In October, Bunn was one of 12 people from across the country to be recognized as White House Champions of Change for Sustainable Seafood. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraska. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lydia Brown, Galen Koch, Jonathan McNichol, and Rhode Island Public Radio's Kristen Gorlay. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.